Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Justin Kennedy, and my latest book is The Bucket List Beer. Whether you're planning a pub crawl, a weekend in the country, or a long vacation, this book is chock full of ideas for exploring the world's best beer destinations. I have to call attention to how comprehensive this book is. Over 400 pages, it's so heavy. You list 1,000 of the best beer experiences around the world. So what's your background in beer, and where did you begin to dig into this beer exploration? Well, my background in beer probably predates my college days, unfortunately. But, uh, (laughs) you know, in in college, uh, I really started... uh, you know, getting interested in beer and maybe, you know, beyond your usual, uh, you know, sneaking your, your dad's six packs or whatever. But, uh, I, I started really getting into beer, uh, when I went to grad school in Cleveland, Ohio, and there was a bar around the corner called Le Cove de Vin, which is a weird little bar that opened. I think it's, it, it opened at eight o'clock and stayed open until about four in the morning. And it was this subterranean space that had all these kind of crazy nooks and crannies. And there was, vintage beer and fresh beer from local breweries. And I was just amazed by all the different stuff that was going on. So uh, after that, I moved to Washington, D.C. And it's another great uh, beer drinking town with a lot of great bars. Um, at the time, not a lot of breweries, but uh, it was uh, it was a good place to to get into beer. And I started writing about beer when I, when I was living there, um, freelancing for the Washington City Paper, which is a you know an alt weekly that came out free little paper and uh, was covering beer for that. And then I moved to New York about a decade ago, and I enrolled at uh, in the NYU Food Studies program. And from there, I started traveling a lot um, and writing more and more about beer uh, as a as a real thing. So that's kind of my background in. In, in beer exploration. So you mentioned uh, vintage beer. What's that? So vintage beer is beer that's aged somewhat. It can be aged for a few months. It could be aged years. It could even be aged decades. Um, typically, it's aged in a bottle. Um, it's aged on purpose most of the time. But, you know, sometimes there's there's vintage beer that's kind of discovered in the back of someone's closet or something like that. And then, you know, not all beer is meant to, I would say 99.9% of beer is meant to be consumed fresh, but vintage beer is beer that has some kind of characteristic, either high alcohol or high acidity or something like that, that can preserve it for a long period of time. I've never heard of that. So talk about the numbers of breweries in the United States now. The early 1900s, there were about 2,000 breweries in the U.S. And that number slowly declined up until Prohibition. And, you know, for 13 years, we had no breweries at all. And then after Prohibition, people started making beer again, but there were only about 700 breweries. And then from post-Prohibition, up until 1979, it slowly de- declined until the number dropped to 89 in 1979. So there were fewer than 90 breweries in the entire country. And then in 1979, Jimmy Carter repealed the ban on home brewing, and that got a lot of people interested in making beer themselves, which then meant they were taking their hobbies and making them a profession. So between 1979 and then the mid-'90s, it, it got up to about 1,500 breweries uh, from the mid-90s until now. It's more than uh, tripled, and the number today is 7,000 breweries. In terms of styles, 
let's say, German-style beer. Can you get that in the Midwest? Can you get that everywhere? You can get uh, pretty much any style of beer anywhere. A good example of a German-style brewery in the Midwest is a brewery called Urban Chestnut, which is in St. Louis, and they make some of the best German-style lagers in the in the country. And it's the type of beer I would put up against any you know actual German beer. It's It's really that good. I love that in each description, you state why this pick is important. Why did you include that? Um, I think we wanted to highlight why why each entry was in here in the first place. You know, it's it's a thousand small entries. They're short descriptions, but we really wanted to highlight like why this place is better than the other places in its region. So let's go over some terminology. What's the difference between microbrewery, craft brewery, and a brew pub? Uh, so this is a little bit of a gray area, um, but most of those terms are defined by the Brewers Association, which is the the craft brewers um, sponsor agency or whatever you want to call it. So a microbrewery, it's all, it's all kind of based on uh, production numbers. A microbrewery makes a certain number of beers. I think it's 100,000 barrels or less, something like that. A craft brewery is defined as an independent brewery that doesn't have uh, much outside investment. So a good example for a brewery that used to be a craft brewery and is not anymore is something like Goose Island, which got acquired by Anheuser-Busch a few years ago. Um, And then Brewpub is, strictly speaking, a brewery that's on-premise at a restaurant. So it serves food and it makes beer under the same roof. When beers like Goose Island get acquired, does the quality go down? (laughs) That's a that's a really good question. Um, I mean, some in some ways the quality is improved because it's more consistent, but a lot of the character is washed away from that. So, um, you know, it's hard to say. I think the reputation definitely is 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 somewhat lowered, but you know, it's a it's a it's a tough call. There and there's been a lot of these acquisitions over the last few years, um, mainly by Anheuser Busch, but also by some other companies like Miller Coors has a couple can or bottle. <laughs> so for, for me, uh, major majority of beers I like in a can, but a few beers I just can't drink from a can like traditional Belgian, uh, ale, saisons, uh, triples, things like that. I think have to be in a bottle. Same here. I feel like the can is colder. Yeah, that's that's one thing. It does get colder. It feels colder. It feels better in your hand. It's it's easier to recycle. It's lighter. If you're going, you know, I do a lot of uh, bike packing and camping, and uh, it's easier to transport that stuff than bottles. But yeah, I love Cezanne Dupont, and I would never think of drinking that in a can. Uh, same. There's a lot of those beers have they've tried to put them into cans, and I. Even like Rodenbach is now available in cans. And I just think it's not the same. I wanted to chat about a couple of spots in this book. First is McSorley's, the oldest Irish tavern in New York City. They have two beers on tap, dark and light. And it was a men's only establishment up until 1970 when Barbara Shaw, owner of a leather goods store right down the street, sauntered in for the first time. Talk a little bit about McSorley's. Yeah, it's this traditional Irish tavern along uh, East 7th Street between uh, 2nd Avenue and and 3rd Avenue. And it's it's just a storied place that's, you know, it's weathered. It really looks kind of haggard, but it's also like one of the coolest places to drink. Instead of, 
you know, a single beer, you, you, you're served two mugs, two eight ounce mugs, which I think is really cool, quirky little thing. There's a great cheese and onions plate that they serve. That's kind of strange, but also just fits in perfectly. And it's kind of like this touristy spot, but also has some, some real history to it. So it's, it was one of my favorite places in the first, one of the first places I drank when I moved to New York, uh, 10 years ago. It's funny because I moved to New York in 96 to um, do cookbook publicity. And I was looking around for an apartment and my real estate agent showed us apartments. And then he said, well, we have to go to McSorley's. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) It was awesome. Everybody loves it. It's one of those places that brings everyone together. You know, it's not it's not just a certain type of clientele. Everybody goes to make soilies and it's awesome. You also include the Blind Tiger Ale House, one of New York's first craft pubs, which was on Hudson and West 10th for years and years. And now it's on Bleecker. The space to me doesn't feel right because over on West 10th, there's a Starbucks where the old Blind Tiger used to be, but the new place just doesn't feel right to me. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> when I moved to New York, uh, the Tiger had already moved, so uh, I had never been to the original spot. But the new spot you know, is just consistently a great place to drink. They always have some of the newest beers that are available in town, and they also have this deep cellar of uh, vintage beers and other special kegs that they put on pretty much every week. So every time you go in there, you're, you're, you're bound to find something new and also something really special. And I think it's kind of, uh, you know, it's evidenced by their, their regulars. They have a huge regular crowd there, and it's kind of a gathering place for a certain uh, beer geek of a certain age in New York City. My husband and all of his squash friends that play squash go there. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> to me, the Tiger is also one of those places where like everybody goes. I started going there because I was going to NYU and it was right down the street and we would gather there and it was just, you know, it's an awesome place to drink. Now to Francis Tavern, way downtown in New York City. Can you share the George Washington story? Sure. So Francis Tavern is way down the tip of Southern Manhattan. It's uh, one of the oldest buildings in the city and it was kind of a tavern and a and a like a restaurant and inn type place and the, as the story goes um i think it was in 1783 george washington was ho- hosting a, a dinner for his officers of the continental army and they were having what was called a turtle feast so it was a dinner that was based around lots of turtle dishes and it's kind of a legendary spot and it's where he uh he said farewell to his officers of the Continental Army. And so now it has this, it has a museum, it has a tavern, and there's even a brewery that's associated with it called the Porterhouse uh, Brewing Company, which is oddly enough actually based in Ireland, but it's their outpost, their American outpost uh, for their beer now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a very strange setup. (laughs) Yeah, I'm um, part of the Daughters of the American Revolution, and we used to have our DAR meetings down there. And I would always like sit and think, did George Washington sit here and drink? Or did he sit over here and drink? <laughs> it's also, it's also. Um, I mean, it's a great place to drink too because it has a huge whiskey selection. It's on the whiskey trail. You know, it's just, it's a really cool bar. 
but uh, the 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 brewery association is it's a little bit of a head scratcher but you know i think it's an ownership thing so lots of good beers coming out of the midwest talk about boulevard beer in kansas city my favorite all right so boulevard is one of the original midwestern craft breweries it was founded uh, in the late 80s and it makes some of the most totally reliable uh, what i call crushable beer so beers that are easy to drink um, but they also have this line of really interesting barrel aged beers like tank seven saison which is one of my favorites and uh, the brewery is actually speaking of acquisitions it was actually sold to duval morgan which is a a Belgian company a few years ago and is now part of this umbrella company that includes Oma Gang here in New York, up in the Finger Lakes, and also uh, Firestone Walker in California. I know. I'm kind of bummed that they got acquired, but good for them. <laughs> well, that's, so to me, that's one example of a brewery that has the quality has not gone downhill since uh, since acquisition. It's They've continued to do the same, like, cool stuff. Prairie Artisan Ales is out of Tulsa. I love them too. Describe the crazy bomb Imperial Stout. So bomb is kind of started off as a, as a, a specialty release. And now I think it's, it's year round, but it's this huge Imperial Stout. I think it's about 12 or 14% alcohol. It has all kinds of ingredients added to it. Spices, cinnamon, I think even chili peppers. And it's just this big, thick, viscous beer and they they have a a few different iterations that are sold throughout the year including christmas bomb which is one of my favorites and it comes in this this short little stubby uh bottle and it has a really funny artwork on it see my problem with the 12 or 13 percent alcohol is you can't drink that many no it's a sipping beer so you know i think a few ounces, uh, even a small bottle like that, you're supposed to share with friends. <laughs> oh. oh my! Oh, and no one told me that. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> Oregon seems like a good beer drinking state. Talk about the. How do you pronounce it? Labruatory. Labruatory, I think is how you say In it. Portland. <laughs> yeah, so Labruatory is a nano brewery, which is um, they're kind of making beer on a one like a keg by keg basis. So it's really small production, um, and they're also kind of known for never making the same beer twice. So each batch is different. It's maybe not necessarily a new beer, but it's you know it has a different hop in it, a different uh, yeast strain or something like that. But it's a small brew pub um, in Portland, and you're right, uh, Oregon is by far one of the best states, if not the best beer drinking states in the country right now, and has been for a long time. Now to outside of the United States. Describe the fermented maize beverage, how it's made, and where you drink it. All right. So I think you're referring to chicha, which is fermented uh, blue maize that's a specialty of Peru and a couple of other parts of uh, uh, South America. And traditionally, it's chewed by humans. (laughs) The maize is chewed and then spit into these communal vats, like little balls. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's said that an enzyme that's in human saliva is what uh, it's what activates the the maize and makes it uh, converted to fermentable sugars. So it's not really a commercially available thing, but what you can do is if you're visiting, um, especially like a, a touristy area like Machu Picchu, there's there's these houses that have red flags or flowers uh, lining the, 
the area outside. And typically these are what are known as chicha bars, but they're not really open to the public. So you'll probably need a, a local guide to help you get in. It's kind of like going into someone's house and, uh, and, and drinking what they've made, the homebrew that they've made straight from their, uh, their tanks. And what I've been told, it doesn't really taste like beer at all. It's more like a cold corn soup. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little strange. That's gross. Is that the grossest <laughs> beer you know of in the book? That's probably the grossest beer I know yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the Middle East section really piqued my interest. You call the Burzite Brewery or Shepherd's Brewery, which is north of Ramallah, Palestine, one of the Middle East's most exciting breweries. How come? Well, I think, you know, there's not a lot of breweries in the Middle East in general, and this is one that's really doing uh, kind of modern craft beers. They're, they're, they have, you know, modern technology. They're making pilsners, lagers, and other things, but they're also doing beers like stout with coffee, and they do like a Christmas ale that's infused with cinnamon. So they're really doing what I think of as more modern uh, styles rather than just, you know, your traditional pale ale and blonde ale and all that stuff. Um, and they also do uh, what's become this kind of big beer fest Festival. It's a two-day fest, which is one of the only uh, beer festivals that I know of in the Middle East. The term African Guinness caught my eye. What's that? So it's very different than the Guinness that we know from our local Irish pub. It's uh, it's really boozy. It's about twice the alcohol content of regular Guinness. And it's also made with sorghum and corn. So it has like this kind of bitterness it also has like a real smooth mouthfeel. So it's kind of like a it's it's like a, a high ABV stout and it's not nitrogenated like uh, like the Guinness that we have here is. So it's kind of like a totally different beverage, but it was originally brewed to be exported to these countries to to Africa and also to to parts of the Caribbean here and it's it's just this big boozy uh, stout that you wouldn't think of as a, being very thirst quenching in these hot regions, but uh, that's why the the exporting is why it was originally sent there. Over in Tokyo, they have karaoke haunts and record bars. Describe those. So a record bar is kind of like stepping into someone's house. There's typically only one or two people that work there, and that's your bartender, who's also your DJ, and they spin records, actual vinyl, um, and they can get really niche. I mean, some of them are, you know, jazz and blues bars, but others only play hip-hop from 1986 to 1989 or something like that. And then there's others that kind of focus on a certain subgenre of heavy metal or something. So there are all these like kind of really niche places and they typically serve one or two beers. And it's really about the experience. There's the cover charge. It's a small operation and you're kind of supporting one or two people. It's it's a really cool, unique experience. And then karaoke bars are kind of the opposite of that. They're these big, massive halls where, you know, you get pictures of cheap, <laughs> cheap rice lager and just drink all night long and, and sing. And they're just a lot of fun. You include a North Korean microbrewery, one of the last frontiers of the craft brewery world. Talk a little bit about this. So there's a lot of beer that's made in North Korea, but most of it is not, um, you know, the type of it's it's mass produced adjunct lagers. But there are this is one of the, the things I haven't been there myself, but I had uh, one of my freelancers that worked on this and uh, he said there's there's the hotel a few hotels that have brew pubs on premise and it's kind of like McSorley's in some way there's your choices are either 
yellow beer or black beer <laughs> and uh, that's all you're given but the, it is fresh beer and it's made right there on premise it's i would say compared to especially compared to south korea there's there's no real comparison but it there is a small microbrew scene in North Korea itself. Now I want to hear some of your personal opinions. What do you look for when you hit the pub? I like places that have a tightly curated selection of beer. I don't like walking in and seeing a hundred different choices because if you see that, you know that most of the beer, maybe half of it's probably not going to be very fresh. Um, you know, I, I like a place that it's doing a lot of the picking for me ahead of time. I also like places that are that are more fun. Um, I don't like a lot of pretension when it comes to beer. I like places that you can go and hang out and actually talk to your the people that you're there with, have a conversation that's not overly loud, not overly crowded. You know, I'm a dad lately. I've been hanging out at a lot of places with other families, other dads. So it's really changed for me over the last few years. But that's kind of what I'm looking for when I go to a pub these days. What's your favorite bar in the book? Oh, let's see. My favorite bar in the book is probably a bar called Navare Res up in Portland, Maine. It's uh, kind of a geeky beer bar that's off this little alleyway. It's kind of hard to find. It's in downtown Portland, but it's it's not something you would just stumble upon. You have to go down an alley and and then you kind of come upon it after you make another turn. So it's uh, but it's this cozy little space, and they always have like local beer from Portland, but also like some really cool imported beers. They have a, another a vintage list with just some really cool bottles that you're probably not going to find anywhere else. That's probably my favorite bar in the, in the book. What's the quirkiest bar in the book? Uh, I think the quirkiest bar in the book is, it's really hard to pronounce. It's a, it's in Belgium. It's called Inde Verzen Keringer Tegen de Grodorsk. <laughs> so it translates <laughs> <Close> to... <enough. laughs> It translates to in the in the insurgents against great thirst. So it's a bar in Belgium. It's only open on Sunday mornings and then on certain church holidays. It's it's associated with the church and it was it was built in the mid eighteen hundreds and has been kind of operational ever since. But it specializes in something called lambic, which is uh, traditional to the region. It's a spontaneous fermented beer, meaning there's no yeast that's added. It's just whatever is in the air is inoculating. Uh, the beer and, and creating the beer. So they kind of specialize in that. There was a woman that that owned it for 50 years, but she tried to retire in the 90s and sell it off. Two brothers took it over and it, and today it's, it's run by them. But it's just this quirky little weird place that's only open for a few hours every week. And I think people go there after church and drink Lambic and hang out on the town square. It's really cool. The sober curious trend is so big right now. Are there any non-alcoholic beers that you like? Yeah. So earlier this week, I actually had the uh, first first ones I've had of the of the new wave, and it was from a brewery in Connecticut called Athletic Brewing. And you know, I got to say, the beer was pretty good. It wasn't it wasn't great. It had like kind of a tea like quality. Some of it did, but uh, they had a coffee stout that was that was really good, and it's completely non-alcoholic. I I think it's. It's interesting. I don't think it's something that I'm personally going to pursue, but you know, I think it's it's also part of this trend of wellness and looking more towards low calorie, low ABV, low carb, uh, you know, quote unquote beer. Now to my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. What is your favorite <laughs> all-time cookbook and why? Uh, this was a hard question for me. So <laughs> I have hundreds of cookbooks in my house, and I love a lot of them. But I think my favorite cookbook, it's a book called Honey from a Weed by Patience Gray. Do you know it? No. What is that? 
Oh, okay. So it's a strange little book. It came out in the 80s. Patience Gray was just kind of an English uh, uh, food writer who ended up marrying later in her life um, a Belgian sculptor. And they they lived all over the Mediterranean part of Europe. So they were in Provence. They were in Italy. They were in Catalonia for a while. They were on a couple of Greek islands. And then they finally settled into this like abandoned farmhouse in Puglia in southern Italy. They spent the rest of their years there. And she started working on the book, I believe, soon after they moved there in the 70s. And it's kind of like a doc document of every place they lived and recipes that she had gathered. And it's also like very of the moment at this point, because it's about foraging and uh, wild edibles and, and stuff like that. It's just a very strange, like kind of esoteric book. There's no photographs in it. It's all just drawings that uh, she did of plants and fish and other animals. And it's, it's more of a, it's more of a document than anything else. I keep a copy on my bedside uh, table and just flip through it, you know, a couple times a week. It's so interesting. I love that. That's so cool. You got to get a copy. It's really cool. Where can we find you on the web and social media? So I'm on Instagram at Justin X Kennedy, and you can find my website. It's www.justin-kennedy.com. Thanks, Justin, for chatting with me on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks for having me. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.